praise you again. You're such a great and an awesome God. And Lord, I just pray in the frailty of man that, Lord, you would be glorified, that you would be our teacher tonight. And our Father, I pray that we'd each have receptive hearts to hear from you, myself included. So we just thank you for your word. Be with the, the children's ministries right now, Father God. Be with Vince and with Pat and Doug as they minister to our kids. May the kids be attentive as well. May their hearts be ministered to. So Lord, we love you. We praise you, Lord. And we just thank you for what you're going to do in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Last week we looked at the beginning of the tabernacle. And a lot of times when you look at things like the tabernacle and the furnishings, you know, I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of pastors just, you know, skip right over those chapters. And that's why, you know what, you don't teach the Bible topically because if you just teach topics, you're never going to teach the deep truths of God's Word. You're not going to look at the whole counsel of God. He didn't give us 52 little booklets in the Bible, you know, one for each week. He gave us the whole Word. And when you look at the tabernacle and you look at things in the Old Testament, they're awesome. It's been said that for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture. For every truth that you see in the New Testament, there's something you can look in the Old Testament and you can see a story that just illuminates it. And we're going to see tonight as we're going through the tabernacle that there's such a clear picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We see a picture of heavenly things, but more importantly, we see a real clear picture of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle and its furnishings, again, are a clear picture of Him. So real quickly, an overview of the tabernacle, for those of you who may not have been here last week or just as refresh your memory. The tabernacle is not huge. It's 150 feet long and 75 feet wide, the one that they traveled with throughout the wilderness. And in that tabernacle, they had several pieces of furniture. When you would come into the tabernacle, the first thing that you saw in the outer court was the altar of burnt offering. Now, the altar of burnt offering is where you went to make initial sacrifice. It was the outer court. It was called the court of women. It's where everyone else, the, the normal, everyday people, could come and make sacrifice unto the Lord. When you watched, walked past that altar of the burnt offering, you would come to a laver, a bronze laver, like a big tub kind of thing. And you'd come up and it was there that you were able to cleanse yourself from the sacrifice you had made. And blood and water would be mixed together. And there we see again the picture of the altar being a picture of the cross of Christ and the laver being a picture of sanctification. A picture of, we don't, now baptism doesn't save us and we don't need to be baptized to be saved, though we should be baptized. But it's a picture of that cleansing work of, in remembrance of what had happened over here on the altar. Now going beyond that, you would then come to what is called the holy place. You had, inside that you had the Holy of Holies, and in the, the first room was the holy place. Now we talked about this last week, that when you walked into that holy place, the first thing you saw was the table of showbread. Now this table of showbread, where they kept 12 loaves of bread throughout the week, they would bake this bread and put it in there every week, and it was a picture of the, of the 12 tribes of Israel, and God's presence with them, and His provision for them. At the end of that week, they would change the bread out, and that's what the priests would eat. That's the way they would sustain, sustain themselves. But what's interesting to me is that we know that Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, and he is the bread of life. And it's interesting that when you look there in that holy place, you see the showbread that points to Jesus. On the other side of that holy place was a, was a lampstand. And in that lampstand were seven different branches. Now it's interesting that in Revelation 2 and 3 it talks about the seven churches. And God has called us, the church, to be the light of the world. He is the light of the world, but He shines brightly through us. We are to be the moon to His sun. Amen? He, we're a reflection of Him. And so we see very clearly that as you look at that, you see that Jesus truly is the light of the world, and that He is the bread of life, and that the laver, the cleansing work, that points to Him as well. And then that, that burnt 
or the offering, the burnt offering, also points to him. And then lastly, before you got into the Holy of Holies, you came up to an altar of incense. And that was a place where the priest would burn incense, and the incense would be prayer or intercession on behalf of the people. And it would loft into the Holy of Holies, that most holy place, a picture of you know, going up into heaven before Almighty God. Now last week we saw that the very first article that was built, even before the tabernacle itself, which we're going to look at tonight, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we know, we've, I know you've all heard of the Ark of the Covenant. If, if for no other reason, you've heard of it from Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And the Ark of the Covenant was the first thing that they built. The first instructions they got from God was to make the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why is that, that they would make the Ark of the Covenant first? Now, the Ark of the Covenant was, the, was a box. And inside that box, they had three items. We talked about this last week. One of the items was the Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets. Now remember how we talked about the fact that those stone tablets, stone is a representation. Who's the rock that the Bible talks about? Or the stone cut without hands that's in the book of Daniel? Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. And then the words written on the stones. And who's the word? It's Jesus Christ again. Also within the Ark of the Covenant was the rod of Aaron. Aaron being the high priest. Who is the ultimate or the great high priest? It's Jesus Christ again. They also had inside the ark, they had some manna, a jar of manna in remembrance of God providing for them in the wilderness. And again, who is the ultimate manna? Who's the bread from heaven? Who's the one that ministers to us and feeds us? It's Jesus Christ yet again. Now within that ark, they had a mercy seat that they were commanded to create. We talked about this last week. And that mercy seat was made of solid gold. They covered it in solid gold. And on it, they had two cherubim. Or, which are angels. We'll see some more of that tonight. And these angels were facing each other, and the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that one day of the year, was able to go through the veil into that most holy place, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now that blood on the mercy seat was to make sacrifice for the sins of all of Israel. Now what's interesting about this is we talked about how that's also a picture of Jesus. Because when Jesus rose from the dead and they came to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, what did they see? They saw a slab, blood stained in the middle, that blood that had seeped through his clothes, and then on either end were angels. Now, isn't that a picture of the mercy seat? And you look at the mercy seat, there were angels on both ends and blood stained in the middle. Again, all of this pointing, every bit of it, to Jesus Christ. So what an awesome picture. Now, it's interesting to note, too, that the mercy seat had to remain on. If they pulled the mercy seat off and they looked inside the ark, they were struck down dead. We also know they had to carry the ark in a certain way. We saw this last week, how they created it with poles. And the reason for that was that we're not to touch God's glory. Later we know that they tried to put the ark on a cart, and the cart started to tip over, and one of the guys reached out and touched it, got struck down dead. We're not to touch the glory of God. So we need, before we can look at the law, we must have that mercy upon it. The law in and of itself will kill us. Why? Because it reveals that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We must have God's mercy. So tonight we're going to pick up, and we're going to look at chapter 26. And in 26, here's what we're going to see. We're going to look at the construction of the tabernacle itself. Now the tabernacle also is a picture of Jesus. And we'll see that tonight. Now, in John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there for dwelt in Greek is tabernacled. That's how it could be translated. So the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's Jesus one more time. Now, it amazes me that people can say, well, yeah, the Old Testament, it's just an old book. It's Jesus all over the place. You can't help but read a paragraph of the Old Testament and not see Jesus Christ. Now, a tabernacle is just simply this. It's a tent. 
It's a temporary dwelling. It's interesting to note that Jesus came here to earth and dwelt on the earth in a temporary way, right? So the tabernacle is a temporary dwelling. The tabernacle is also very humble in appearance, as we're going to see tonight. It's not this big, special, you know, beautiful synagogue. It's not this beautiful temple. It's a tent. But you know what's awesome to me? The Bible says that when Jesus came, that he was of no great appearance that we would be attracted to him. He too was humble in appearance, as the tabernacle is humble in appearance. It says in Isaiah 53 that he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. But here's the good news. Inwardly, when we see it tonight, the tabernacle is awesome on the inside. And as Peter and James and John found out, when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ, Jesus was awesome on the inside. Amen? When he, when he revealed his glory to them, they were blown away. And here's the thing, the tabernacle from the outside, it just looks like a tent. But when you get on the inside, it's a pretty awesome thing. But you must get on the inside to be able to see what's on the inside. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at the first layer of the tabernacle, the first layer of, of tenting that they put over. Verse 1, it says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, and blue, purple, and scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Now, you might say, okay, so they're building a tent. That's pretty exciting. They're making a tent. Wow. Okay, and they're going to make it blue and purple. That's great. But you know what? Points to Jesus again. Ten curtains, each one 42 feet by six feet long. 42 feet long by six feet wide. Five curtains coupled together in two groups of five. Now it's interesting that how did they receive the Ten Commandments? They received the Ten Commandments, five each, on two different tablets, right? And here we see five sets of curtains and five sets of curtains, five First five curtains woven together on this side, the other five woven together on that side. Again, a picture of the law or the Ten Commandments and they, as, they wo- as they sew them up together. Now, it's interesting that it says that they're made of fine woven linen. Now, that linen would be white. And white in the Bible is a picture of what? What is it? Purity, holiness, righteousness. Again, as we're going to see in more detail, pointing to Jesus Christ. It says also blue. Blue talks about the heavenly or deity. Purple. Purple talks about what? What is in the Bible? Purple. Royalty. Right? They wore purple. They were clothed in purple, signifying royalty. And then lastly, the color was scarlet. And that that color scarlet represents sacrifice. We're going to look at that in some detail tonight as well. Now, it's interesting to me that if you look at what those four colors represent... Remember when I started teaching you guys through the Gospels that I went through each Gospel and kind of told you how each Gospel had an emphasis. And it's interesting to me that as I was looking at these four colors and what they represent, each of the Gospels kind of correlates to them. All right? I'll give you some examples. First of all, in Matthew, it emphasizes the fulfillment of prophecy and the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Showing Him to be what? Royalty. And that's what we see in the purple. Later in Luke, we see that he emphasizes Jesus' sinless humanity. That points to the white, 
color that's in the thread because of his righteousness. Thirdly, we see his deity, and that points to the blue. It's talking about heaven. And lastly, in Mark, it spoke of him as being the sacrifice, and that points to the scarlet. So it's interesting, again, that the old is revealed in the new. When you look at the New Testament and you see principles, they reflect back on the old. Now, I want to talk to you just a minute about this scarlet color because there's something really interesting about it. And I've heard this in studies many times, and so I spent some time this morning looking at it. In Psalm 22, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, it says this, But I am not a man, but a worm. I am a, I am a worm and not a man. The word for worm there is toloth. And the word for scarlet in the verse that we just read is toloth. Now, what is toloth? Toloth can either mean scarlet or it can mean worm. Now, what was a toloth? A toloth was a worm that would crawl up on a tree, and the way that it reproduced itself is it would attach itself to the, to the branch of a tree, and it would literally embed itself into that tree, attach itself, and there it would die in reproduction. And in its death, it would leave a big red spot on the tree where it died. Now it's interesting to me that what they had to do typically for scarlet thread was they had to take some of these toloths and they had to grind them up and then use the dye from the toloth to create the red thread. Now here's what's interesting, you know, they couldn't go down to, you know, longs and get red thread. That wasn't how it worked back then, all right? And so the toloth, the word for scarlet here, it's interesting that that thing would, in its reproduction against a branch or on a tree, it would leave a red spot. But after a few days, that red spot would turn white. It's a scientific fact. So this is pretty awesome. Now here's this toloth that attaches itself to a tree, dies in reproduction, leaves a red spot, and after a few days, the spot becomes white and, it, and it eventually dries up and blows away. Now what's that a clear picture of? What did Jesus do? He, he was attached to a tree. What was left there? His shed blood upon the cross. And after a few days when he rose from the dead, that shedding of his blood would made us be able to be white as snow. It says in Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So awesome to me that we see very clearly here, even in just the word scarlet, that it points to Jesus. Because it's the word, it's toloth in the original language. Now it also says there, and the designs of the cherubim, shall, you shall weave them. Now cherubim is a picture of angels. And the angels were with Jesus his entire life. You know, it's interesting that at his birth, who announced Jesus' birth? The angels did. Who was there with Jesus when he was in the wilderness after he was tempted? It says that the angels came and comforted him. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was, his, his heart was breaking over about the fact that he was about to go to the cross, who came and ministered to him? The angels did. Remember also in the Garden of Gethsemane when the, they came to arrest him. And do you remember what happened? Peter, Mr. Ready, aim, fire, right? Ready, fire, aim, exactly. He reached out and grabbed, grabbed his sword and cut Malchus's ear off. You remember that? And Jesus reached down and picked up his ear and put his ear back on, and he said, you know, if I wanted to, I could call down a legion of angels and wipe these guys out right now. So wherever Jesus went, the angels were watching over him. But here's, and you know what, he's God, and, and the amazing part is he didn't need angels watching over him. He's God, he's created the universe. But here's the good news, and you know, and I don't mean this in a mystical way, but the reality is that there are angels watching over us. And the reality is that the battle that we fight is a spiritual one. And the battle belongs to the Lord, and our God's already been victorious, and we can trust in Him. So, so we see there, it says, put cherubim, you shall weave into the, into the fabric. So you've got blue, you've got purple, you've got white, you've got cherubim, angels within it. And so as they weave this 
this beautiful linen and they put it together. It's a very clear picture of Jesus Christ and they laid it across the top of the tabernacle. Now it's also interesting, I want to just point out to you that there, I mean, how many of you know, have heard of a guy named Gehazi in the Bible? Remember him, Gehazi? Now Gehazi was a man, or Gehazi, was a man who was, they were fighting the Syrians and he was overwhelmed at the battle. And he looked around him and he thought, man, we're done for. You know, we're, we're in big trouble. And he was with Elisha, but Elisha wasn't worried about it. And he couldn't figure out why. And Elisha prayed, and God opened up the eyes of Gehazi. You know what he saw? He saw that behind this huge Syrian army was an army ten times the size of angels on chariots of fire and holding swords of fire in their hands. And the reality is that if, if our eyes were opened up to what's really going on around us, I think we'd fall over dead because we'd be so blown away. But the reality is it's a spiritual battle that we fight. And we need to realize that the battle belongs to the Lord and God is victorious. So here in this tabernacle, we see a clear picture of Jesus. We see the angelic and we see them weaving this all together. It's also neat, note here in the, in the verse, at the end of verse uh, 1, it says 10. And again, 10 is the number of the commandments. It was the number of the plagues. And I believe it's a number of judgment in a sense that here we see 10 commandments, 10 plagues, all pointing people to their need for a Savior. Verse 4, And you shall make loops of the blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage on one set, and likewise you shall do the outer edge of the outer curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make at the edge of the, of the curtain that is at the end of the second set, and the loops may be um, clasped to one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that they may be one tabernacle. So here's how it worked. They had this long, now roughly 60 feet long, you know, total, but it's got, it's 42 feet high, and it goes all the way across this way, and they've, they've woven the five together on this side, and they've sewn the five together on this side, and now they're going to bring them together at the top using these clasps along, along these loops. So they're going to loop it together and clasp it together. Now in the Bible, it's interesting that the number 50 is used here, because in the Bible, 50 is the number for deliverance. Why? Remember what happened at the year of Jubilee? You guys remember that? How often did that happen? Every what? Every 50 years. And every 50 years at the year of Jubilee, if you owed anybody any money, you were out of debt immediately. Wouldn't that be great if they still had that law? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you love for them to come out and blow a ram's horn at the year of Jubilee and celebration and say, tear up your mortgages. Throw away all your credit card bills. You don't owe anybody any money on your cars anymore. That'd be, oh, that'd be sweet, right? Well, that's what the year of Jubilee was. You were able to, basically, you were completely out of debt. But again, that pointed to the fact that we can be set free from the ultimate debt of sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's also interesting that on Noah's ark that it was 50 cubits high. And what was Noah's ark used to do? To deliver Noah and his family from the judgment that came upon the world. Now it says that these clasps are made out of gold. Gold in the Bible is a picture of deity, right? Whenever you see gold, what was one of the three gifts that was given to Christ at his birth? Gold. And it pictures deity. So here we see them taking these clasps, 50 of them in number, again pointing to deliverance, putting gold clasps upon them, pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ. They've got angels on them. They've got colors in them that all point to the, our Savior. And this thing is laid across the top of the tabernacle. Now the heavy part about this is this is the bottom layer, and this is the layer that nobody sees except those who enter in at least into the holy place. Because we're going to see that this beautiful linen is going to be covered up with something else. 
So let's take a look here in verse 7. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair. Now, that, now if you, let me think, I mean, I'm telling you, that, I struggle with it. I'm thinking, now wait a minute. If I was an interior designer, and I had this most beautiful linen you've ever seen in your life, right? And I've got angels woven in it, and it points to Jesus Christ, and it's just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. It's got golden clasps upon, on the top of it, and you lay it across the tabernacle. The last thing I'm going to want to do is put goat's hair on top of that. How about you, right? Now, goat's hair in those days was black. So black goat's hair, and they take the goat's hair, these black goats, and they, they put it all together, the second layer, and, and it, was this, it was almost like this weather-resistant material that's still used by Bedouins today. They still use it today in making tents. And it says here they took this goat's hair to be tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits, and the 11 curtains shall have, all have the same measurements. And you shall couple the 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. You shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent. Now here's what they did. They took these curtains, and you'll notice that they're three feet longer. And they literally took the goat's hair and put it over the top of this beautiful linen so now that all you would see, that was the second layer, was this goat's hair. Now goat's hair was black. And the black would, what do you think that black goat's hair or black, this black colored thing that was put over the top of the linen might be a picture of in the Bible? Sin. So here you have this holiness and perfect, and, and Jesus Christ, you just see a clear picture of Him and His perfection, in His royalty, in the fact that He's in His deity, in His righteousness. And then placed upon the top of that is this goat's hair picture of sin itself. Now it's interesting, look at verses 9 through 11, because notice how they're going to class them together, but there's a minor difference. Look, it says there, verse 10, You shall make 50 loops of the edge of the curtain, that is the outer, outermost one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make fifty bronze clasps, put the clasp into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be one. Now what kind of clasp did they use on the first set? Remember, it's gold. Gold being a picture of what? Deity. This time they used bronze. Bronze is a picture in the Bible of judgment. You know, you'll notice, you'll see this throughout the Bible, you see bronze, and it's, it's pointing to judgment. You see it in Revelation, you see it in several places in the Old Testament. You know, when, when Moses went out in Numbers, and he held up the, the serpent, and they had to look at the serpent, because when they got bit by the serpent, they had to look at the serpent, it was bronze. And so bronze is not deity, it's not gold, it's a picture of judgment. So here we go from this, from this beautiful linen, picture of Christ, Gold clasps, picture of his deity. And then on the top of it, we put black goat's hair with bronze clasps, a picture of sin and judgment. Now we're not done yet. There's still going to be some more that's placed upon the top of it. Look at verse 12. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall, shall hang on the side of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side to cover it. Now it's interesting that under that, again, that beautiful tapestry, we're going to see this, this goat's hair placed upon it. But you know what? When Jesus was crucified, when he cried out, his final statement, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, one of the final words of Jesus on the cross. Who knows what that means? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Jesus said that on the cross, what happened? Who remembers? It went pitch black in the middle of the day. Darkness fell. 
darkness, a picture of sin, the sin of all mankind being placed upon our Lord and our Savior and our King. And you know what? Here we see this picture of, the cross, picture of Christ and upon it the blackness, the sin being placed upon the top of Him, which would ultimately happen later upon the cross. It's sin that separates us from God's glory. It's also interesting that it's a goat's hair because later they had a tradition that when, in the Day of Atonement, when they, they would bring in goats and they would kill one and they would take another goat and they would take it out to the wilderness and they would confess the sins of Israel over this goat and they would send the goat out into the wilderness to die and that's where we get the term scapegoat. That's where it comes from. You know, they call someone a scapegoat? It's from the Bible. And so what happened is, in Israel, they literally would confess the sins over the goat, and the goat would go out into the wilderness to die, a picture of all the sin, you know, going with him. And they would sacrifice another one. Now, it's interesting to me that, again, it's goat's hair, black, picture of sin, being placed upon top of this beautiful linen that would not be seen from the outside. Now, look at the third layer. This is going to be even more fascinating. You also, verse 14, make a covering of ram skins dyed red. Now, what do you think ram skins dyed red might be a picture of? Blood of Christ. So here you have this beautiful linen, a picture of Christ. Sin placed upon the top of that, and then on top of it, we have this ram skin dyed red. Now, it's interesting to me, because one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, there's a picture of this, and it's on Mount Moriah. And on Mount Moriah, Abraham was told by God to take his son Isaac up to the mountain and to sacrifice him to the Lord. You remember the story? As he took him up to, on top of the mountain, he, you know, he, this was his only son. This was the, the son of promise. The Messiah is coming through the son. It didn't make any sense whatsoever, but he obeyed God nonetheless. And he goes up, and we know the story that he takes him, he ties him down, and as he's about to, cruci- about to stab his son and kill him, God stops him. It says, Abraham, now I know you will not withhold anything from me. And you know what? It says, and that God provided himself, not for himself, he provided himself a sacrifice, and he looked up, and what did he see in the thicket? What was it? A ram. Just like we see here, the ram's blood. A picture of Christ. And here it is, the ram's blood. They died, they, they died and, and they put these ram skins on top of the black representing sin of the goat, the scapegoat, right? On top of that, they placed this layer with what very clearly points to Christ and His shed blood on the cross. What an awesome picture. So you have this beautiful layer on the bottom of the, this, the deity of God, the, the righteousness of Him with the cherubim woven into it, just beautiful. And then on top of that, you got these goats, goat's hair, Black, you know, with the, bra- with the brass, bronze clasps, again, picture of judgment. And then on top of it, the answer for the goat's hair. And again, the rammed skin, picture of sacrifice. Same, you know, it's interesting that it's on that same place that Jesus would be crucified, and Jesus ultimately did provide for himself a sacrifice. So we see on the bottom righteousness and then sin and then the shed blood of sacrifice as you look at each one of these layers. And then on top of that, look at the rest of verse 14. Look what it says. It says, and the covering of badger skins above that. Now, you know, this is the brutal part, is that badger skins, I looked this up, was common and ugly. And so the only thing seen by the outsiders, you know, the Moabites and everybody that would walk by, they would just see these badger skins on top of this tent, and it would look nappy. 
right? It would just be like, what is that, right? And, and they don't have a clue that underneath that is, is the, the ram skins, right? Dyed red, picture of, of sacrifice. And under that is the goat's, hair, the goat's hair in black, a picture of sin. But underneath that is the, this beautiful linen, a picture of Jesus Christ. And people walked by and were oblivious as to what was there because all they saw was the outer portion. All they saw were the badger skins. It just looked ugly and common to them. But it's interesting, again, I mentioned this before, that it says in Isaiah of Jesus, He had no form or comeliness that we should desire Him. People on the outside had no idea of the inward beauty, and unbelievers have no clue of what they're missing. Amen? unbelievers have no idea what they're missing not having a relationship with the king of kings and the lord of lords we've seen him for who he is i you know what again i've not seen him in the flesh and i can't wait to see him but his holy spirit lives inside of me jesus christ is my best friend and i can't imagine living life without him and the world just walks on by and doesn't think much of him the people that lived in his day didn't think there was anything special about him They looked at him. There was nothing about his form that attracted them to him. And the same thing is true of the tabernacle, a picture of Christ. As they would look upon it, it was badger skins. It was common. There was nothing special about it. The only way you would see what was awesome about it would be if you yourself went into that most holy place. Because then you would be looking from the inside out. And what would you see? You would see that beautiful linen right on top. It would be right above you. Can you imagine going to that holy place and the lampstand is lit and that beautiful fine linen with the angels woven into it? Can you imagine looking up and how beautiful that must have been? Awesome. But you'd only see that if you entered into the holy place. And only if we have a relationship with Christ and we enter into that holy place and that covenant with Him do we see the beauty of, of God's creation and God's grace and God's mercy and God's plan. And you know what? Only then will we see the ultimate beauty in heaven one day. Amen? And so only if you're on the inside, but if you're on the outside looking in, it doesn't look like anything special. Oh, wow, man, it looks like a bunch of badger skins. Big deal. Now he's going to move on and talk about the structure itself. Verse 15. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Now acacia wood, we talked about this last week. It grows in the desert. It's the only wood that was in the desert that was covered with thorns, Thorns again, a picture of what in the Bible? Sin. How do we know that? Because you go back to the Garden of Eden, and after Eve sinned, that's when thorns came. You know that rose bushes didn't have any thorns until Eve sinned. And that's why when Jesus was crucified, they took a crown of thorns and placed them on his head because it was a picture of sin. And so we see the same thing here, that these, these acacia wood had thorns on it. And then it says here, each board is basically 15 feet tall and about two and a quarter feet wide. Verse 17. Two tenons shall be in each board for the binding to one another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. A tenon was like a a projection that was on the bottom of the board and it would fit into a socket as we're going to see to hold it in place. Verse 18. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle. Twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Two sockets under each of the boards for the two tenons. And for the south side For the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards. And there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And for the far side of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six boards. And you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them 
that they shall be for the two corners. So there will be eight boards with the sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each board. And you shall make, okay, now, you get to that point, okay, and there's 48 boards. It was pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? Okay, you got 48 boards, you got a bunch of silver sockets, they're putting boards up, you got 20 on this side, 20 on this side, six over here, leaving the east side open. It's interesting to note that when Jesus comes back, where's he coming to? What, what direction is he coming to in, in, in Jerusalem? What's the Bible say? East. East. Guess which side of the tabernacle doesn't have boards on it? East. There it is. It's in the, everything in the Bible points to Christ. They were talking about a second coming all the way back in Genesis. But here we have the boards, right? And these boards, it says there that they're put together, and as they're put together, that they're mounted on these silver sockets. And you might think, well, what in the world has that got to do with anything? Well, first of all, the boards in many cases, that who is the tabernacle? Who is it today? Where is it? It's in us, right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, this is not a house of God. And that's a, something, that's a term that people use. They call it a house of God. No, we're the house of God. Amen? When we get together, wherever that is, that's the house of God because God's there. Amen? And, you know, praise God because this is a gymnasium. But if we're here, then God's here. But it's not, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's a house of God. Well, not really. It's, it's a building. It's a room. It's a place where God's people can meet. And that's a great thing. And when we come together, the Holy Spirit's there. But if we all leave, this ceases to be a house of God. Amen? It's a gymnasium right? And the most beautiful church in the world is not a house of God, it's just a building, right? But we make the mistake. And so here the tabernacle is built of these boards, and I personally believe, this is my opinion, I believe these boards are kind of representation of each one of us. Because as the tabernacle is being put together, what holds the tabernacle together? What is a part of that tabernacle? It says that each one of those boards had to be knit together. And I believe this is a picture that we need to be in fellowship as Christians, amen? You know, we cannot, as Christians, Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger, God saved you to use you. Amen? And you know what? These boards, it says they were linked together. And as Christians, aren't we linked together? Don't we become family? You guys are my family. And when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, we truly are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me that they were taken and they were mounted on silver sockets. Now, where else do we see silver in the Bible? Silver is a picture of what? It's redemption. And here's why. What did they pay for Jesus when they betrayed him. What did they give Judas? 30 pieces of what? What was the price of a slave? 30 pieces of silver. If you wanted to redeem, that's the word that's used, if you wanted to redeem a slave, someone's in slavery and you wanted to buy them out of slavery, you had to go and give 30 pieces of silver to buy them out of slavery so that they would be made free. And that, you know what they call that? Being redeemed. Being redeemed. Redemption. And isn't it interesting that these boards are mounted in silver? You know what? It's not until we've been redeemed that we become a part of that tabernacle. Amen? It's not until we've been grafted in. It's not until the price has been paid. It's not until through His shed blood on the cross He paid the price for us. We've been linked together. We've been grafted into Him. We've been set, in the, we've been set as a part of his, of his tabernacle, if you will. Every one of us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So here those silver, nothing's in the Bible by chance. And again, this, I'll be honest with you, Dave's opinion, but to me, when I look at silver, that's what I think of. Now, look at the next part of this. And again, I, just something that God's put on my heart. Look at verse 26 through 30. And you should make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards on the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from one end to the other. 
You shall overlay the boards with gold, make the rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you have shown on the mountain. So now it's time to raise it up. But before they can raise these boards up, and these boards to remain, you know, to stay together, they needed to take boards and run them along this way, and literally put them against it so that the boards would stay in place and they wouldn't fall apart. Now if the wood is a representation, each of these pieces of wood is a representation of us as being parts of the temple of the Holy Spirit, then I see this wood as what binds us together? What is the thing that holds us together? What is the thing that... And it's interesting that there's five of them. And so, again, this is just a, a thought from Pastor Dave, okay? I'm not saying this dogmatically because I don't know for sure. But to me, one of the things that came to, to my mind was Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he talks there about five different offices in the church that God uses to equip us for ministry, to hold us together as a body. And here's what it says in Ephesians 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets and evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So what are these boards? They're overlaid with gold, which means, again, deity. I believe anointed by God, touched by God, right? Called by God. And these boards are the things that hold the tabernacle together. These are the ones that God, it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately does the work, but you know what? God chooses to work through men. Amen? The Bible says, for the lack of vision, the people perish. There's so many churches today that are wandering off blind because they got people in leadership that either aren't saved or aren't called. And the church is falling apart. They have no direction, they have no vision, they have no passion, they're not teaching the word without compromise. Why? It's because it becomes a religious country club because it's not being held together by people anointed and called by God. It's just people who, maybe they were popular, somebody voted for them, maybe they went to the right seminary, whatever it is, and they put that person in charge, and the guy's up there and doesn't even know God. And it's, all, it's rampant in the church today, it's all over the place. Why? Because they're not overlaid with gold, they're not been, they don't have the deity of God upon them in the person of the Holy Spirit. They've not been born again. Or even if they have been born again, they've not been called by God. You know what? If somebody's been called by God, you don't have to think twice about it. Amen? When you see somebody in their calling, you go, oh, called right there. There it is. Right? I mean, it's just evident. You know, if somebody's tripping and stone, oh, wait a minute. You know, maybe, you know, again, God can still use us, but maybe that's not what I'm called to. Now, if I got up here and tried to lead worship, you'd say, not called. <laughs> Pastor Dave, we love you, but please, right? Got any earplugs or, you know, I mean, I'm not called. That's not my gift, you know? And so often what happens is we vote for, and instead of being anointed by God and called by God and placed there by God, amen? That deity overlay. And so what's holding that tabernacle together? Those who've been called by God and used by God to hold it in place. I love the fact that, you know, some apostles, apostles today sent ones, missionaries. That's what apostle means, sent one, sent out by God. You know what? That's who you want. People that are sent. Prophets. You know, today we don't, we don't need any new revelations, by the way. If it's not in God's Word, we don't need it. This is it right here. Amen? We don't need any, any new prophets coming into town, bringing out new revelations. We've we got enough revelation to deal with right here. Amen? But pro prophecy is not just foretelling, although God can give prophetic word. And what I mean by that, I've had people come up and tell me things that God revealed to them that agreed with the Bible, that were specific to my life, that came true. I've had people, God's used people to do that. Not, not a bunch of times, but two or three times in my life. One time I remember, I'll never forget this, I was at church in Lancaster, and my dad was actually there, and there was a guy after church, I'm praying with people, I was one of the assistant pastors, and there's a guy that's been waiting for me for over an hour. He's just waiting for me. And my dad even said, he probably doesn't remember this, but he said, you know,
son, I think that guy's been waiting for you. And so sure enough, he just stood over there quietly and waited for me. I went over to talk to him, and he said, you know, Pastor Dave, I, you know, I barely know you, but I just have to tell you something, and if, if it's not from God, then forget about it, don't worry about it. But if it is, I, I just have to tell you. He said, I've had this dream every night for like 10 nights in a row, and it won't go away. And he said, the dream is, and, this is, and at the time, I was praying about leaving to go start a church, and nobody knew it. I mean, nobody. He said, I was praying, he said, in this dream, what happens is, I'm out in this field, and in this field, it's, it's pouring down rain, and, and nothing's growing, and everything's dead, and everybody's sitting there waiting for somebody to go up and say something. He said, it's, it's dark out, and, and everybody's, everybody's hurting, and there's nothing happening, nothing's growing, and he said, I'm sitting there, and everybody's calling for somebody to come up and begin to speak, and nobody will come, nobody will come. He said, and in the dream, I'm sitting behind you. You're sitting right in front of me in the dream. And he said, in the dream, I pushed you and you got up. And when you got up and started teaching, all of a sudden the rain stopped. The sky opened up. The plants all around started blooming. Trees started growing. And then people started coming forward and giving their life to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you or not. But I'm like, oh, dude. Right? Now, here's the thing. The funny part is that I would always sit in the very front row. And I never sat in the back. But that week, my wife, my wife happened to have a cough. And didn't want to sit in the front because she didn't want to be distracting. So we sat in the back, and guess who we sat right in front of? He goes, dude, when you sat down in front of me, I went, oh, you know, because he said in the dream, you were sitting right in front of me. Now that, again, that's not him making something up contrary to the word, but that's a specific word from God. And you know what? I received that. And it was just literally a month or so later that I went up to Northern California to start a church. And so God can do that, but it will never disagree with the word. More, more, more often than not, what prophecy is, is not foretelling, it's forthtelling. What I'm doing right now is prophecy. Because what I'm doing is foretelling of truth. I'm proclaiming truth. This right here. When you do that, that's prophetic. So that's what this is. Now the other gifts it says are evangelist. And you know what? We're all called to share our faith, but there are those that have been supernaturally gifted by God to be evangelists. The other gifts are pastor and teacher. Pastor is a servant, a one who equips people, right? And that's what, we're call- that's what I'm called to do. There's not a doubt in my mind that that's what I'm called to do. And so I need to be obedient to that and be faithful to that and know that the gifting of that comes from God. And so we see here this tabernacle and it's held together by these five bars. And again, I don't know for sure that that's what it's pointing to, but to me as I'm studying, that's where it took me, so... There's an application there, and I believe that it applies to each of us. Now, lastly, I want you to see something. I really love this part. In all my years of studying the Bible, I've never seen this before, and I saw this today. And I love when God lets me see stuff I haven't seen before. It's always been there. I've just been blind, okay? But I want you to see something here, because the last thing that we see, as these boards come up, there's one more thing that has to be put together. And it's the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And again, I told you that everything in the, ta- in the tabernacle, I believe, points to Jesus Christ. So we're going to put up a veil now. And you might say, what in the world, or how does that point to Christ? So let's take a look at verse 31. It says there, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. And it shall be woven with artistic design of cherubim. Now, it's interesting because when you go, I'm going to read this to you. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. And now we, this, there's no question about this. This is not subjective. There's no doubt. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20 says this. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So what is the veil? It says right here, through the veil that is His flesh. So the veil right here in the Holy of Holies is a picture of Jesus Christ, His flesh. Him coming in the flesh. Now we're going to see some real clear application here in a minute. So it says here that this veil is a picture of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now when Jesus came, let me ask you a question. We go back, we already said this, but I'll just, by way of review, what does it say there? It says there that you shall make a veil with blue, representing His deity, purple, representing His royalty as King of Kings, scarlet thread, representing the fact that He would suffer and die in our place, we might have a uh, eternal life, and fine woven linen, a representation of the fact that he is righteous God. It's white, per- picture of his righteousness. And then it says there, with an artistic design of cherubim. So the angels, just like I talked about before, at his birth they were with him. When he, when he was going through ministry, they were there to comfort him. But what I really love is this next verse. Because when you realize that Jesus Christ that the veil is a picture of his flesh, look what it says, what do they do with the veil, with the flesh of Jesus Christ? What do they do with it? Look at verse 32. You shall hang it upon four pillars. They took the veil, which is a representation of the flesh, Jesus Christ in the flesh, and they hung it upon four pillars made of wood. What is that a picture of? It's the cross. Uh, Yet again, the veil, it says in Hebrews 10 that the veil is Jesus in the flesh, and they took it and they hung it upon four pillars. Now you've got to realize, this is nearly two, or at least 1,500 years before crucifixion existed, but they took the veil and they hung it upon the pillars. Man, that's Jesus. Now I get excited, I've never seen this before. I was pretty fired up. Man, there it is again. There's Jesus one more time consecrated. And here he is. It says, put on the four wooden pillars. Now, the pillars there, I believe there's a couple of potential applications. One, it could be the four Gospels. The four Gospels are referred to as four pillars other places. And so, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all point to what? Jesus being the Messiah, and they all tell the story of him being crucified. It's also possible, and again, just something God put on my heart today, how many points are there on a cross? Top, bottom, both sides, there's four. And the four pillars made of wood that would be overlaid with gold, but made of wood, and they hung the veil, a picture of Jesus Christ in the flesh, upon the four pillars. Man, that's the crucifixion. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus was crucified, what happened to the veil that was in the temple? It was torn from top to bottom. So when Jesus was torn... When Jesus was broken in the flesh upon the cross, what happened to the veil? It was torn. The veil is a picture of Jesus Christ in the flesh. You guys may not be as excited as I am, but I was like, whoa, that's good stuff. Love the Bible. And you know what's amazing? You can read the Bible over and over and over, and God will just reveal more and more and more of himself to you every single time you read it. That's why people say, well, I've read the Bible. I'm like, dude, stop it. No, you haven't. Because if you had, you'd still be reading it, right? Oh, I've read the Bible. Really, what's the main theme? I mean, I love to ask people that question. Oh, I've read the Bible. Really, what's the main theme? I asked a guy that one time down, we're meeting at the vet's hall, 
and he, I can't remember the answer he gave me, but it was bizarre. It was just like, a, what? Oh, what Bible are you reading? That ain't the Bible? Bro, man, that ain't in the Bible. But here's the thing. It says there, what's interesting to me is that they hung it on the cross, but or hung him on the pillars. But look what it says about the pillars. Hanging on the four pillars of acacia. Remember, acacia wood has what on it? Thorns. Thorns are a picture of what? Sin. It says here, wood overlaid with gold. Gold, a picture of what? Deity. Who's Jesus? He's deity. He's God made manifest in the flesh. These hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of what? Silver. Silver, a picture of what? Redemption. I mean, Jesus, 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 Jesus. All over the place. Silver. Redemption, 30 pieces of silver to buy back a slave, to be redeemed. Gold, deity. Jesus Christ is deity. He's God made manifest in the flesh. Four pillars, a picture of either the Gospels or the, the four points of the cross. The fact that the veil, it says in Hebrews 10, 9, we know for a fact that that's pointing to Jesus. And the veil was rent, it was torn when Jesus was broken upon the cross. Man, what an awesome and a clear picture. You're looking at just how they put the tabernacle together even. You read through it the first time, you think, okay, they put boards up, you know, the sockets, okay, all right, next chapter, right? But right in there, you look at all this stuff you can miss if you don't stop and spend time and ask God to reveal truth to you. Again, when the veil was torn, I love the fact that it was torn. Because you know what happened when it was torn? When the veil was torn, it allows every one of us in this room to enter into that most holy place. The place where only the high priest could go before. Only on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Only then could they enter in. And you know what's awesome to me? Is in the holy place, they had a lampstand to light it up. Because if you've got fine linen with goat's hair over the top, and then on top of that, ram skin dyed in red, and then badger skins on top of it, it's going to be pitch black inside of that tent, Right? But they had the lampstand that they lit 24 hours a day. They kept it lit with oil, representation of the Holy Spirit, right? But they kept it lit 24 hours a day. But you know what's awesome to me? When the priest went into the Holy of Holies, he didn't have any light. The veil was behind him. So what lit up the Holy of Holies? The Shekinah glory of Almighty God. Can you imagine walking in and seeing that? And here's the presence of Almighty God, like the Mount of Transfiguration. What an awesome thing. And so they would go on, but here's the good news, you guys. We can behold His glory, in a sense, every single day. Because the veil's been torn. We don't have to wait till Yom Kippur. We don't have to wait till the Day of Atonement. You can go in that most holy place driving down the freeway. Amen? You can sit at your bedside, and you can just cry out to God, and you can draw into His presence anywhere, anyway, anytime. Man, that's awesome. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid the price. He bridged the gap between sinful man and holy God. And only he could do it. And nobody else could represent the veil in the temple. Let's finish up. You shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. Verse 33. You shall hang the veil from the clasp. They shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You know what? Until Jesus Christ died on the cross, there was a division between that most holy place and sinful man. But now, because of his death on the cross, there's a bridge between sinful man and holy God. You know what? Jesus either is going to be your judge or your savior. That's what the Bible says. Who's going to judge on judgment day? It's Jesus Christ. And when he judges, he will either be your redeemer or he'll be the one that judges you and sends you off into eternity separated from Almighty God. Verse 34, you shall put the mercy seat 
upon the Ark of the Testimony in the Most Holy. Again, remember how we talked about the fact that without the mercy, we cannot deal with the law. The law shows us our need for mercy. We cannot get there by just being good enough and keeping the law. We must have the, the blessing of the mercy seat. You shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the ta- tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. So the first table is a table of showbread, and then the lampstand that we talked about before, verse 36. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. This is out at the, the very front door of the tabernacle. Notice two differences. No cherubim. It says, in fine woven linen made, with, made by a weaver. You shall make for this screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze, not silver, for them. Picture judgment. So as people were coming into the tabernacle, it's be, they were coming in sinners, judged for their sin. And the first thing that they saw was that, that, bront, that altar where they could make incense, they could burn a sacrifice, make sacrifice unto the Lord. Then they would go to the laver, that place of cleansing. But then only the priest could go into the holy place and only the high priest could go into the most holy place. The high priest being a picture of Jesus Christ. Because only he could go in and intercede for us. Only he could go and suffer and die in our place. Only he could, make, could tear away that veil so that we can draw near to him. So in conclusion, the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. The lampstand, Jesus is the light of the world. The showbread, he's our provision and he's our presence. He's always with us. The altar of incense, that place right when, they, when you, you came in, right before you went to the Holy of Holies, is a picture of the fact that he's our intercessor. The veil, again, the only bridge between sinful man and holy God, Jesus Christ. He is the veil. And the veil has been torn and we can enter in. And lastly, the mercy seat, a picture of Christ as well because he not only fulfilled the law that was, it, that was inside of the ark, but He became grace and mercy for us. His blood was shed upon that mercy seat that we might have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again just for the tabernacle, Lord. And what a clear picture of You. And Lord, I just thank You, Father God, that as Your children, Lord, that we can enter in to Your holy presence, Lord. Not because of our good works, but because of Your shed of blood upon the cross. So, Father, I just pray, Lord, that each one of us, Lord, would just draw nearer to you, that, Lord, we would never take for granted that work that's been done, that we've been redeemed, Lord, that you've paid the price, Lord, that you've called us, Lord, to be your children. And now, Lord, you desire to use us to to be tools for, for your kingdom, Father God, to minister to others. So, Lord, I just thank you and we praise you, Lord, just for this clear picture of your Son. Thank you for your love for your grace, for your infinite mercy. I pray for opportunities this week, Lord, that you would use us, Father God, to make a difference in eternity. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share with people what you've revealed to us from your word, to point people to the truth. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, stand up and close the worship song.